important. So important. I should say twice. Okay. Thank you, you guys, for being patient. You know, so much of the, the value of this is that we record it, and so that you know we have it for for the future. And um, uh, we'll try again. <laughs> Take two. <laughs> so. Assalamu alaikum. Welcome to another amazing session of um, Surah Al-Hujurat for tonight, um, for Saturday. And uh, inshallah, it's going to be an amazing session. I just wanted to call people's attention to the incredible khutbah that the Sheikh gave yesterday, um, where one of the most important findings um, that we really zeroed in on um, is this report that CARE um, just released, um, where they had done a study of expenditures or investments into organizations that could be classified as Islamophobic um, between the years 2017 and 2019. And they discovered that over $105 million has been invested into these organizations through charitable giving. So some things like Fidelity, you know, Schwab, um, donor advised funds, um, <clears throat> and also some, you know, obviously, um, you know, Christian, um, evangelist organizations as well as Zionist organizations, people who are largely, you know, Christian and Jews who are very committed to um, the causes that they believe in. And they, um, you know, it was a really important um, mind twister when, you know, Sheikh pointed out, you know, listen, we oftentimes criticize people who have money as spending their money on luxury items and cars and vacations and things like that. Um, but if you think about the size of that number, $105 million, people were so con convinced and, and felt um, such conviction that Islamophobia or Islam and Muslims are such a threat that they were willing to invest $105 plus million into the threat of Islam and Muslims. And that is a really impressive number because that is money that they didn't spend on luxury items and things that, you know, for their children or investments and all of that. They spent it because they worried about Muslims and Islam. And, you know, like when I think about how apathetic Muslims are in our community, it's really amazing. Like, I wonder if we are actually even worth that amount of investment. But regardless, that is the investment that they've made. And when I think about how hard pressed we are here um, to try and raise money to support the Tafsir project or the Sira project, you know, we really can't even get to the point of raising half of 1%, which is what we would need. So, you know, what it just makes you wonder, you know, um, when I think about what Sheikh has said oftentimes about this being, you know, the jihad of our times really being the jihad of the intellect, the jihad of the idea, ideas, um, and communication, you know, when we think about Muslims and how we talk about ourselves and how we, you know, defend ourselves, defend our faith, defend our prophet, oftentimes I found that people don't have substance you know like when they talk about Islam it used to be oh Islam is a religion of peace um, you know and when when people come forward and they attack the Prophet and they say things like he's a pedophile he had so many wives Aisha was you know a, a child you know we oftentimes are beset with doubt because we don't have the you know the education or the knowledge or you know a response that is truly substantive and that can turn things around so where does that kind of thing come from? You know, or even when people accuse the Quran of being a, a book of violence. I think about what we are doing here at Project Illumin and creating you know, the, um, this knowledge, 
we're learning the language, we're learning the substance. This, this knowledge is actually what you can take and carve into a message to turn around and fight back and be on the offensive and actually return the gaze. And so I ask myself, how much is that worth? I mean, truly, if someone comes and makes an accusation and you have nothing to, to, you know, to answer with, that is so painful and, and destructive. But if, imagine if you had in your, in your back pocket, oh, sure, that's because X, Y, Z, and you come away with a really compelling argument and you know, we educate our, you know, our Muslim youth to be able to communicate in that way with very substantive knowledge. How much is that worth? And that is truly what we're creating here. So it's truly a shame that you know we have not been able, um, as a community, to create that kind of conviction that you know um, that we see happening in other faith communities where they you know would donate towards knowledge. And you know there are a lot of reasons for that. And so again, just I would highly recommend if you haven't watched the khutbah yesterday to do that because it was extremely valuable in understanding the Muslim mindset and um, and and what it's going to take for us to turn it around. And you know, with that, it is also very sad. Um, you know, we are starting this week with um, you know UCLA Law School, so um, we have a really intense semester before us. Um, Sheikh is te teaching two two classes, um, and also will um, is on a committee where he you know it's a it's an internal appointments committee where they have to evaluate um, the promotion for three people, and he just found out that there is another element that is going to be extremely time-consuming and, and stressful. So this, from Project Illumin's perspective, will definitely cut into the number of halakas that we're going to be able to give during this semester. And we're just going to have to play it week by week and see how we're doing because we don't want to burn out Sheikh. And it's sad because there are other people that can play this role um, other than Sheikh. There are other people who can teach these classes. There are other people who can serve on appointments committees and determine whether someone, you know, is deserving of an, you know, um, of a, a promotion. But there are not many people, if any, who can do this project the, for the Quran, for this knowledge. And how valuable is this and how important is it? And if we really had our act together, we would take Sheikh and just have him do nothing else but focus on this knowledge that we need as Muslims, the knowledge of the Quran, the knowledge of the Sirah, the way, you know, that substance and content that can make a difference in our world and that can allow Muslims to be competitive and proud and articulate and incisive and, you know, on the offense, not just on the defense or silent and apathetic. So if you guys, um, you know, we are, I'm trying to think about creative ways to, um, you know, move forward with phase two of Project Illumin, which I've talked about, which is the CIRA. But if you have the opportunity to share with people, you know, how valuable is this knowledge? How important would it be if we had this? Um, and maybe that might spark interest. Maybe we could do something to raise that half of a percent of the 105 million that, that you know, Jews and Christians are able to um, raise and spend directly against us. So with that, um, I'm so excited to delve into another surah, inshallah, another incredible opportunity to learn the Quran, access this, this substantive knowledge, and inshallah, if we um, finish our project and publish this as a tips here, at least we will have this to work with to create that content that we can use to fight back. So thank you for joining us, and inshallah, we um, look forward to a wonderful session, inshallah.
Where's the splitting over over what period? Two years, 2017 to 2019. So you know, we we have not been able to raise a half a percent of that um, in you know the the four plus years that we've been in existence as Suli. So, um, but alhamdulillah, you know, I mean, this is like. You know, for the people who really um, follow what we do and really believe, there are people who, you know, have been tireless in giving, and we're so grateful for that. I just um, wish that more people were aware of um, of this access to this knowledge, which has the potential to be just so empowering for so many Muslims. Inshallah. I just want um, the, the, the people who, because I know that these recordings... I've, re I've come to learn that they, they're, people pick them up in different countries and even Muslim countries. Uh, you know, I get messages from the most unexpected of places of people that eventually this tafsir gets to them. And you know, from the perspective of someone who carries the Quran and carries the seerah in their intellect, in their heart, in their soul. And you know that Allah from the very beginning told us the proof of piety is action. The proof of piety is not posturing, it's not performance, it's not emotional displays. Proof of piety is sacrifice and hard work. And then you exist in a historical moment where the people who hate you and hate your religion are willing to sacrifice from the money that they earn, from the profits that could go to buying yachts and airplanes and um, cruises and whatever else rich people spend on. No, they, they're not gonna spend on this. They're gonna spend on fighting you, fighting you and your religion. And over two years, they raise $105 million to pay the salaries of people who've dedicated their lives to do nothing but attack Muslims. Full-time people. They, 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 do, they have no other career other than earning a salary to demonize and attack Islam and Muslims. And then on the other hand, you find Muslims still think the proof of piety is what you wear, how you drink water, whether you use obscene language or not. In other words, performances, but not sacrifice. In other words, displays of piety. What I've called in my writings, um, pietistic, affectations. pietistic affectations. 
because they are. They, they're, they're really pietistic affectations. It's not the sunnah of the Prophet. The sunnah of the Prophet is to sacrifice everything for your faith. That's a sunnah of the Prophet. The sunnah of the Prophet was not about growing a beard, was not about hijab, was not about how you sit or how you drink water or how you, where you put your hands in prayer. That was not, these were all secondary issues, even if that. But the, the main issue was what type of investment you're making in your faith. And so your enemies invest this much in targeting you, and what are you investing to defend your faith? Leave alone developing your defense strategy into an offensive strategy. Leave alone that. I mean, we're not even thinking of that. But can you imagine you, you, you carry the Quran in your heart and in your soul? And you carry the seerah in your heart and your soul. And you live in a historical moment where your counterpart, who the counterpart, the Islamophobic counterpart of you, someone who carries the Quran and seerah in their mind and intellect to demonize and to trash them. So your counterpart is supported to an absurd extent. I mean, it is like as if, can you imagine if at the time of the Prophet ﷺ, the kuffar were willing to spend not 10 times what Muslims spend, not 100 times what Muslims spend, not 1,000 times what Muslims spend, but tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands times what Muslims spend. Can you imagine what the fate of Islam would have been? It, it is mind-numbing. It is mind-numbing. And, and we sit and say they're materialistic. No, we are materialistic. We say, oh, they're hedonistic. They don't have a purpose in life. No, we are hedonistic. Every fault is actually within us. It's not them. Because they actually are committed to their cause, even if it's the, an unjust cause. So Christian evangelists who give up this amount of wealth just because they believe they want to bring Christ to Muslims. And Jewish Zionists who are willing to give up everything to see Israel dominant and supreme. So the entire region can go to hell as far as they're concerned. The entire region can be overrun by dictatorship, corruption, bloodshed, as long as Israel is safe and happy 
and prosperous and they are willing to spend any amount of money to make sure that happens. It's astounding. It's mind-boggling. It's... I mean, I'm, I'm, I have my first class in my Muslims Race and Law course this coming week. And I was hoping that I would get two or three students for the class, to be quite honest. I was really hoping you know, I would be very, but to my shock, there's about over 30 students that signed up for the class. And to be quite honest, I'm embarrassed. I mean, I, I looked at these, the, the roster of students and most of them are not Muslim. And I'm, I'm, you know, I have to intellectualize what is at an existential level, highly embarrassing uh, situation. How do you intellectualize the incomprehensible? Because it, it is, I am sure, I mean, I've taught this course before, and non-Muslim students, you know, naively and innocently ask the most biting and hurtful questions. Well, if this is happening, you know, because we talk about disappearances, we talk about black sites, we talk about the, the war on terror and its effect on Muslims, we talk about the, how Muslims, you know, basically the, the human rights and the humanitarian exception to the universe because no one seems to care if you don't apply the paradigm of human rights to Muslims, et cetera, et cetera. And you know, the, the, the students basically, they're, they're, well, how come we never hear Muslim voices? How come Muslims seem to be largely so apathetic? Well, how come there is no narrative of Muslims rising to meet the challenge, and you give them intellectualized responses that you yourself are not convinced of. Uh, but but that's the academic game, right? You, you, you know, you, you just have to. I don't know. It's mind-numbing. It's astounding. How can Allah has have entrusted us with something so astoundingly beautiful? And we are so astoundingly oblivious. I, I don't know. Okay. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Walhamdulillahi rabbil alameen. Wa subhanallah al-aliyyil azim. Allahumma salli wa sallim wa barik ala Muhammad wa ala alihi wa ashabihi wa man tabaw bi ihsanin ila yawmi al-deen.
اللهم اشرح لي صدري ويسر لي أمري واحلل عقدة من لساني يفقه قولي يا رب العالمين سورة الحجرات A short surah, but as you will see, it has a very poignant and um, a very unforgettable message. Um, so first, let's do, let's situate the surah. Surah al-Hujurat is from the, definitely the late Medina period. And in all likelihood, it is revealed in the 8th or the 9th century of Hijra. So quite late. And there is even some indications from within the tradition that it might have even been revealed after the conquering of Mecca. Although, you know, um, so a, a quite a late revelation and a revelation at a time um, where, so, you know, we know in retrospect that in a year or two, the Prophet ﷺ will die. And when you encounter a revelation that is quite late, and you try to understand the context of this revelation, of course, that begs the question, logically, why is, does this revelation come so late in the process? And add to this, there are, as we will talk about, there are, within Surah Al-Hujarat itself, references to events that took place in Medina where part of part of these references are to an ongoing dynamic that we know about from the beginning of the Medina period that persisted and the ongoing dynamic is the existence of a dissenting group, a group that the Quran refers to as the hypocrites, but that this group continues to create quite a bit of um, headache for this nascent, still very young Muslim ummah. And the way that the Quran talks about the dissenting group this late in the game is, as we will see, is quite significant. 
because you can imagine that, well, if, you know, by now Muslims have fought and won a number of battles, um, possibly by now Muslims have conquered even Mecca, and we know that again, from a rational point of view, if you're just an, if you are a policy analyst, you'd say, well, you know, the existence of a dissenting group, once the prophet dies, is going to be a bigger problem. And if the dissent is um, somewhat muted at the time of the prophet, well, that dissent will explode out in the open once the prophet dies. And so that begs the question then, how did Allah choose to deal with this dissenting group? Although Allah knows that in short order, Allah will take the prophet's soul away. Because in that, that is instructional to us. That is educational to us. Nothing in the Quran is happenstance or haphazard. Everything is there to communicate to us something, to teach us something. Now, moreover, as we will see, at this time, as this, at this, late in the game, late in this Medina period, there are groups that are converting to Islam, entire tribes or clans that are converting to Islam but have not had, definitely have not had the benefit of 10 years of persecution in Mecca, have not had the benefit of going through a hijrah where they sacrificed everything, have not had the benefit of being the Ansar where they sacrificed a great deal to accommodate and assimilate the Muhajirun. So they're late converts and their anchor in Islamic ethics is quite weak. And Surah Al-Hujurat shows evidence that the influx of these groups, as we will detail and talk about, the influx of these groups is taxing the Muslim infrastructure, the Muslim educational infrastructure. Because you have these groups converting to Islam, and when they come and want to convert to Islam, typically the practice of the Prophet ﷺ was to say, okay, I will accept your Islam, but I'm going to send someone with you to teach you the faith. And he would send one or two or three or four or ten or twenty, depending on the on the, on the situation, people who would leave their home 
take their family. Sometimes some of them didn't even take their families, but it depends on who we're talking about. But basically, they would make a huge sacrifice, right? Because they're leaving their home, they're leaving their livelihood, they're leaving their business, and they're relocating and going with the tribe or the clan that converted to Islam. You see, these details, they don't teach you in the seerah, but they're extremely important because it, they tell you what type of commitment is necessary to support Allah's cause and for Allah to support us. We hear about the wars, but we are never taught about a huge sacrifice, and those are the teachers. A clan, a tribe comes and converts, so the Prophet ﷺ picks, nominates, certain individuals and say you will go relocate and go stay with this tribe for a month two months three months six months a year depending to teach them educate them in islam and then after the mission is done they cut you return to medina it's a, it's a an army of educators and they're very critical they play a critical role and what is sad is on some occasions some occasions the prophet sent an educational delegation and it was a trap or the group that converted to Islam reneged. And on some occasions, very sadly, we're going to talk about a couple of these incidents, inshallah, later. Of course, if we do the Sira project, that's, another, that's a complete narrative in itself. And it's one that I've never heard Muslim talk about, which is unbelievable. But... It, it, whether the tribe reneges or the or the tribe actually intended to be uh, intended it as a deception from the beginning they then hurt these teachers they either kill them in some in one instant they tortured them they put out their eyes and and blinded them and basically put them in the sun without water to to suffer thirst and so on and, and die from thirst. Um, so there is a risk. There is a risk that the people that you're going with would turn on you. And that creates a level of anxiety. And as we will see in Surah Al-Hujurat, we will see we will see this we'll talk about it that creates a level of anxiety okay I, this is my jihad is that i have to go do i take my family what if it turns out to be a trap well if it's a trap it's not just me who's going to be killed but 
my wife and my children will be sold into slavery in all likelihood. So do I leave my family and go until I know it's safe and then come and then bring my family along? But what if, and we have this in the Sira, in several instances, we have where the the, the family of the wife would object and say, well, you can, you go on your jihad for three or six months or whatnot, but we don't want our daughter to leave Medina. We want her to stay in Medina. These were social issues that came up. And the bigger the number of tribes converting to Islam the more the tension upon the social infrastructure and the infrastructure of mujahids, of committed Muslims who are willing to sacrifice, the greater the amount of tension upon that infrastructure. And we will see how all of this becomes very relevant to understanding Surat al-Hujurat. And in light of this, what does Surat al-Hujurat, what is the moral point, the ethical lesson of Surat al-Hujurat? And all the very late revelation, methodologically, as well as pedagogically, seem to bear particular significance because there is this issue of, well, now, as Surah Al-Ma'idah says, Allah is completing your faith for you. So on the one hand, we have to consider the fact that it was not given a priority at the beginning. But on the other hand, we have to consider the fact that Allah, was on some issues, comes at the very end and underscores these issues. They, they were raised earlier, like the issue of ghaiba, the issue of backbiting. It was raised before, repeatedly, but then it comes in Surah Al-Hujurat towards the end, and Allah underscores it as a possibly a, an issue that could decide your fate, that could possibly define the social mores and social ethics of your society. One last point before we delve in is that it was also obvious that the Prophet has led a long, grueling uh, mission from everything that occurred in Mecca to the enormously demanding 
undertakings in Medina, all the stress, all the battles, all the sieges, all the issues with his wives, all the issues where he lived and witnessed the passing away of his children, one after the other, girls and boys. So this is a man who's lost every child, except, of course, for Fatima Zahra. And so it, if you're talking about tests, this is a, a man that has been burdened time and time and time and time again and now, although in the Mecca period, he is surrounded by a group of people where he basically can know everyone by name. Now, in Medina, the first half of Medina, the number of Muslims are steadily increasing, and but yet the constant recurring battles means that he has loved and lost a considerable number of people. And the prophet, and again, this is, if we ever do the seerah thing, it would, the, the prophet, the way he navigates and mediates these constant traumas in life, the demands of his wives, and the political situations of his wives, and the numerous challenges that he had to deal with in Medina, and the constant loss of children and loved ones, is with Dhikr, it is not an exaggeration to say ibadah and dhikr, and this is an entire story in itself, that the way he handles all of this is a man basically who's constantly going back to Allah and communing with Allah. But now we add another element, and that is the demands placed on him by these new converts to Islam who don't know him very well, don't know him personally, and are bringing in an element of set of new demands and new stresses. And the sort of pressing issue of what type of norms does the Quran demand of someone who is in a place of trust trip, like the Prophet 
and of those that deal with the Prophet And you get a sense of nearly a sense of the um, of the pressure, or I, I don't know how to the right words, the, the pressure or the stress or um, the the very real life. Uh, practical demands upon the Prophet ﷺ from the opening of the surah. The surah begins right away without an introduction. It sort of delves into the topic as if to say to you, before I give you a larger point, the micro-level dynamics have to be anchored upon sound foundations. Before you get to a more abstract point, if you will, your ABCs have to be right. Your structure has to be right. So immediately, it starts, Ya ayyuhalladina amanu. And we'll notice in the surah, there are, Ya ayyuhalladina amanu, all you who believe, is repeated, I think, five times. And Ya ayyuhalladina, not all believers, but all people, is repeated once. And we'll see why this is significant. يا أيها الذين آمنوا لا تقدموا بين يدي الله ورسوله واتقوا الله إن الله سميع عليم يا أيها الذين آمنوا لا تقدموا بين يدي الله ورسوله واتقوا الله إن الله سميع عليم يا أيها الذين آمنوا لا ترفعوا أصواتكم فوق صوت النبي ولا تجهروا له بالقول كجهر بعضكم لبعض أن تحبط أعمالكم وأنتم لا تشعرون so, la tuqaddimu, it's it's an idiomatic expression. So, if you say in in classical Arabic, la taqdim bayna yadi al-imam, or la taqdim bayna yadi al-ab, what it means is. They they call they call it sta'ara tamsiliya in Arabic. Just in if you, they call it sta'ara tamsiliya. So that it's like saying, don't jump ahead of the imam or don't jump ahead of your father. If you say la taqdim bainayadi al-ab, means don't cut them off. Don't um, try to preempt them by st- stepping ahead of them. It's a, 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 a subtle point of respect and reverence. 
it's like saying, be mindful of your place so that you are not, whether intentionally or not, stepping ahead of who you should not step ahead of. Um, and practically, it means do not let ajalu bil aw al So, look, don't, whether well-intentioned or not, don't rush to make a point or to do something without being mindful of whether this is disrespectful to the Prophet whether this undermines the place of the Prophet. So be mindful of yourself. So uh, Muhammad Asad translates it as do not put yourselves forward. It's putting, it's, it's not, don't commend yourself if that what's put yourselves forward means. But it, it, it's not that. It's means that do not um, preempt or act in a way that is not mindful of your place vis-a-vis the Prophet What is important here is that this includes rushing to, and as we'll see the importance of that as the surah goes on, rushing to make judgments, rushing to take actions, either without consulting with the Prophet when you should consult, or, as importantly, without being mindful of what the Prophet, whether this would please the Prophet or not, and we'll see why this becomes really critical. Um, the Prophet is amongst you right now, living amongst you, and being mindful of what reverence and what respect is due to Allah and due to the Prophet is a habit. So develop this habit because your numbers are increasing and some of you especially these new converts to Islam and the swelling of the number of Muslims are not mindful. They, they're, they're, this is not part of their habit. The significance of this beyond the occasion for the context of revelation you see Muslims in their history until the modern age. The modern age was, in, was influenced by a very odd 
um, uh, ironically, anti-prophetic movement, the Wahhabi movement, which didn't care much for loving the Prophet. I mean, on the one hand, they insisted on following the Sunnah of the Prophet, but on the other hand, they, they fought the idea of revering the Prophet. But beyond the Prophet being alive and amongst us, how can you revere the Prophet and not preempt the Prophet? How can you be mindful of what the Prophet would approve of or not approve of unless you know the Prophet? You see, if you look at the amount of poetry created in the Islamic civilization expressing intense love for the Prophet if you look even at the Qawwali tradition in uh, South Asia the whole spread of Islam in Indonesia and some of the most beautiful things I was in Indonesia and I attended the performance of a Sufi it was a family but what they sang they gave me a translation of the poem they sang. It, it was just a beautiful poem. Uh, the, the mother and father and brother are, were the ones who played the musical instruments and the daughter was the one who did the singing. And I will never forget that performance because it was a beautiful poem. And the way Islam spread in places like Indonesia and Malaysia and so on was through the love of the Prophet, Hubbul Rasul. Muslims in modernity are not taught to love their prophet. They hardly know their prophet. And so being mindful of, well, would the prophet approve of me acting this way? It's not a matter of do, can I, do I imitate the prophet in the way the prophet drinks or the way the prophet sat down or the way the, way the prophet uh, dressed. Do I know the prophet so I act in a way that is truly mindful of what would disappoint or not disappoint the Prophet. Well, that, how is that possible unless you know him? And you know him and you know what type of model, what type of character, what type of personality did the Prophet ﷺ model for us? You see, that's why Islamophobia is so dangerous because when they struck at the Prophet, they struck at the very heart of Islam. They struck at the model. You can't take the Prophet Muhammad out of Islam and still have Islam. So you know, when Hershey Ali, and I know probably you guys don't follow what Hershey Ali says, but you know, in book after book, including her latest, it is an, an unrelenting attack on the character of the Prophet. And her idiotic point is that, well, what we need is for Muslims to reform by realizing how immoral their Prophet is. We're going to respect their right to be Muslims. Yeah, you know, we, we as Americans have no problem with them being Muslims and even being devout Muslims. But as long as they realized that their prophet was immoral and that he was no model, 
Well, you know what? It doesn't work. <laughs> That's it dead, murdered, deceased, buried and gone Islam. You're not going to have an Islam with a malign prophet. And unfortunately, I mean, even look at look at all the pick up read. I mean, one of the most popular books, Martin Ling's about the life of the prophet. All you read the entire all the modern literature, you read the entire thing from cover to cover, and you feel that you've learned very little about the personality of the prophet. You they they tell you a lot of data. He did this, he went here, he did this, that, you know, fought this battle, but came back. But being mindful, because it's not just the Prophet, but Allah and the Prophet. It's, a, it's really a tall call, a tall order. If you are, don't have that mindfulness, the sense of who the prophet was as a human being. Okay. So, mindfulness of Allah and his prophet and it's a self-censoring mechanism because it, the very beginning is that don't say anything, don't take any action without being mindful of Allah and the Prophet. Don't say anything, don't do anything without being mindful. Okay. From that general prescription, then it goes specifically an example of the mindfulness. And it chooses something that is quite micro. Ya ayyuhal ladhina amanu, la tarfa'u aswatakum fawqa sawti al-nabi, wa la tajharu lahu bilqawli kajahri ba'dikum liba'd, antahbata a'malukum, antum la tashharun. So, It is, it, the Allah repeats, when Allah repeats, Ya ayyuhal ladhina amanu, it is a call of intimacy. It's like when I say, my son, X, Y, and Z, my son, listen to me, X, Y, and Z. What I'm doing is, I am, it's, a, it's an expression of intimacy. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is sort of, when it says, Ya and repeats it, Allah is going through to your conscience, to your very heart, and saying, I need you to understand this at the most essential, existential level. And the example that Allah takes 
of mindfulness vis-a-vis the Prophet, especially, is quite remarkable because Allah could have chosen, you know, any of the big examples. But Allah chooses something that takes a great deal of sensitivity and taste to illustrate to you what mindfulness is. Now, and what is this example? The tone of your voice. In the tradition, you read reports that say that some people would fast, it's known as Yawmushak. Yawmushak means that they're not sure if Ramadan is on Thursday or Friday. So they would fast a day early just to be safe. And in these traditions, you read that this revelation was intended to tell them, stop doing that. Meaning, just follow what the prophet tells you and stop trying to go beyond what the prophet tells you. Uh, other traditions say, no, this was revealed because um, people would come in Eid al-Adha. The, this is the Eid where you sacrifice animals and you distribute the meat and so on. They would slaughter the animals before Salat al-Eid, not after Salat al-Eid. Um, and then, so this Quranic revelation basically is telling them to stop doing that. Um, interestingly, Bukhari, in, I remember reading in Bukhari's tarikh, in his book that he wrote, his history book, not his hadith, he, he mentions there that uh, this surah was revealed, or this ayah was revealed uh, because people used to fast Yawm Shak or they would fast a day early or two, de- two days early. Um, these, n- none of these reports you can rely on. I mean, they, I think that early interpreters of the Quran thought that this ayah was relevant to these issues. But eventually, in, in some of the traditions, they were reported as occasions for revelation rather than as interpretations by Ibn Abbas or Ibn Mas'ud. Just so you know. As to raising the voice, in the tradition, 
you read some interesting narratives. One of them was that um, I think, if I remember correctly, this was reported by Abdullah ibn Zubair. That Abdullah ibn Zubair, according to this narrative, that um, there, Banu, an Arab tribe known as Banu Tamim came, they sent a delegation to the Prophet because Banu Tamim wanted to convert to Islam. The story of the delegation of Banu Tamim is very relevant to Surah Al-Hujurat in general because they, they feature in this drama in several roles. And the delegation from Banu Tamim, so I do believe that Surah Al-Hujurat was revealed around the time that the delegation from Banu Tamim arrived. And that helps us in dating the surah because the delegation from Banu Tamim came to Medina in the late 8th century Hijra or the early 9th century Hijra. Anyway, so Abdullah ibn Zubair says that there is a delegation from Banu Tamim that arrived and they expressed an interest in um, learning Islam and Abu Bakr recommended that the Prophet ﷺ appoint Al-Qa'qa bin Ma'bad as the head of the educational delegation that would go back with Banu Tamim. So Al-Qa'qa bin Ma'bad would be the one who would be in charge of the 10 or 20 people who are going to go back with Banu Tamim to teach them Islam. And that Umar ibn al-Khattab disagreed and said, no, appoint Al-Aqra bin Habis. I, I know for you right now, these names don't mean anything, but, yeah. So, Umar says, no, appoint Al-Aqra bin Habis as the head of the delegation. And according to this report, that Abu Bakr and Umar get into an argument about their recommendations. And the argument gets heated. And their voices are raised. And when the Prophet ﷺ hears their voices raised, he comes out of his room and is very disappointed. And that that was the reason, the occasion for the revelation. What's interesting is that while this tradition is, is reported, it's reported in a number of different versions. The most authentic of these versions it was, is that this incident, this, this heated discussion where their voices got raised a bit, 
took place after the revelation of Surah Al-Hujurat, not before. And that when the Prophet ﷺ came out, he reminded them of Surah of this ayah, and that's when their voices came down. Now, um, there is, um, yeah, there is another narrative that is of a higher level of, uh, of authenticity about um, a man who's a very interesting man called Thabit bin Qais bin Shamas. Thabit bin Qais was a, a very interesting Sahabi in, in, in many different levels. And I would have loved to, to meet him. Well, I mean, there are a lot of people that I would love to meet in history. But anyway, Thabit uh, was hard of hearing. And because he was hard of hearing, as his hearing got worse, um, the, the worse his hearing got, the louder his voice became. So people noticed that he, he seemed to be often talking and like he would be shouting when he talks. Anyway, so that when this surah was revealed, Thabit bin Qais became convinced that the reason the surah was revealed is to chide him for raising his voice in the presence of the Prophet um, because he he was told several times, do you notice that you you tend to be yelling when you're talking to the Prophet um, and others, of course. And he became extremely distressed that he isolated himself at home and sort of withdrew into into the shell of his home. Um, because he became convinced that the, the Prophet ﷺ is disappointed in him and that Allah came to, to basically um, tell him how that he's the one intended. And the Prophet ﷺ noticed that Thabit bin Qais is, has not come around and is not showing up and he asked about him. And they told him that Thabit, since the revelation of uh, Al-Hujurat, Thabit has, has entered into a deep depression and he's praying at his home and has cut off himself from people. And so the Prophet called for him. And in the narrative, there is a medieval aspect that is probably not authentic to this narrative, it, where the Prophet ﷺ says, what 
saddened you and he said I thought that Allah is angry with me and that the Prophet tells him or predicts that he is that in fact Allah could not be angry at him because he's going to end up being a martyr and indeed Thabit is martyred in the battle of Mu'tah um, about a year later that part of the narrative that sort of typically medieval thing where the in the narrative the prophet predicts the end of the hero and tells the hero that your end will be heroic is part of is sort of the it, it a medieval prototype that i am very doubtful about that I'm very suspicious uh, is sort of added to a narrative later. While I think that it is probably historical that uh, that Thabit bin Qais, it fits for, for, for many different reasons. Thabit bin Qais, in fact, you know, got sad and got so alarmed and depressed and that the Prophet asked about him and then the Prophet told him, you know, no, you're not the intended person by this surah. Uh, this is not the raising of voice that the surah is talking about. And that Thabit then became very happy and then eventually he was martyred in Muta. All of that, I, I believe. Um, anyway, but none of this, none of it, I think is... Um, an occasion necessarily, an occasion for revelation. The occasion for revelation is precisely what the beginning of Surah Al-Hujurat says, وَلَا تُقَدِّمُوا بَيْنَ يَدَيِّ اللَّهِ وَرَسُولِي That be mindful. Don't step ahead of Allah and His Prophet. And you want a practical example of this, your tone of voice. From this, in the Islamic tradition, if you read Sufi books, among the things they teach you, it is a grave error and sin to cut off your teacher or to raise your voice to your teacher. As it is, sin to raise your voice to your parents. I know that, you know, we, we, our modern world doesn't, doesn't emphasize this. But you don't raise your voice to people who are older than you. You don't raise your voice to your parents. You absolutely don't raise your voice to your, your teacher. You don't cut off your teacher. You don't show off before your teacher. You don't try to be more impressive than your teacher. All of these became anchored in the Islamic tradition. Because of this Quranic narrative and what the Prophet ﷺ taught about this Quranic narrative. So, the tone of your voice why the tone of your voice? Because it is an indication of your self-control. 
among the things that we have the hardest time controlling is your tongue and your tone and your attitude. The hardest things. Sometimes they're even harder than giving money. Although with Muslims these days, it seems everything except the most superficial is hard. Your tone and your attitude, because your tone and your attitude are indications of your strength, your inner strength, your inner patience, your inner forbearance, and your and I, I said this, uh, your patience. These are the indications of how you are inside. Are you strong? Or are you not in control? A fundamentally, a weak human being. Because if these are impulses, the impulse to raise your voice in frustration, it's an impulse. And learning to control your impulse is a habit. So here you are presented with sort of the, the, the quintessential example of self-control. Can you do it? Can you be so mindful that, and in the presence of the Prophet, that being mindful of the Prophet and his role means that you don't speak to the Prophet the way that you speak to each other. So you are not, you don't, while you might speak to each other, you take liberties. But there is a point of reverence and order. Unless you learn part of the building blocks of society is a structure of respect. We, we, will we are coded to respect Now, if you don't respect your parents, you don't respect your teachers, you don't respect the learned, you're going to respect something else. You're going to respect those who hold power. You're going to respect, in our days, I guess, belly dancers and rock stars and actors and actresses. You are coded to have a sense of reverence. Who do you have a sense of reverence towards? And so in Surah Al-Hujrat, and you'll see how this ties into the entire message of the Surah, in, in, inshallah, in a little bit. 
Surat al-Hujurat. It comes at this point, and for the old Muslims and for the new Muslims, it comes and says, examine, reflect upon, contemplate the entire edifice of reverence. Are you aware? Because this is very critical for your entire value system. Okay. And in, and look at أَن تَحْبَطَ أَعْمَالُكُمْ A remarkable expression because it's saying lest the way it's translated by, uh, by Asad is lest all your good deeds come to naught without you perceiving it. Meaning Normally, in all the tafsir, they understand this as lest Allah takes away your good points, your credit, your brownie points for your good deeds. But antahbata amalukum doesn't necessarily just mean that. Antahbata amalukum. It's like saying lest. Your deeds amount because in, in in the translation, Muhammad Asad puts like most translators, good deeds in brackets. So it's like the but the literal translation is lest your deeds amount to nothing. Wow. So if I am not mindful of Allah and I'm not mindful of the Prophet, and if I don't learn to res- to internalize who the Prophet ﷺ was, and to be in reverence of this Prophet, so that I think, before I take an action, would the Prophet approve? Even before I marry someone. This is one of the things that in the law, in the bygone days, when I used to get invited to Islamic uh, um, organizations. And I remember I gave a lecture once that the organizers, for some reason, didn't like. And that is, they asked me to, I was very young, I was in my 20s. And they asked me to talk about marriage to these young folks. So my model, I said, well, when you decide when you're thinking about marrying or not marrying someone, think of what the Prophet would say. Would the Prophet approve of the marriage or disapprove of the marriage? And of course, the lecture was for an hour, so I went and gave them some examples from the seerah of the Prophet about people he approved of and people he disapproved of. And as you would expect, there's an ethical message in all of these, as we will see in Surah Al-Hujarat as well, in one of the narratives. And I don't, I don't know why, what was so controversial about this. I mean, it wasn't that anyone came, but they just didn't invite me again. And they, you know, I, I heard that they're like, oh, you know, he, he's telling the youth to, he's emboldening the youth against their parents. I, I don't know, how is that emboldening the youth against, against their parents to tell them, would the prophet, would, if the prophet was alive, 
would you ask the Prophet's blessings or were, are you sure the Prophet wouldn't give his blessings? What could be more straightforward than that? But th this, is, this is precisely the kind of reverence that you have to have for the Prophet not a theoretical construct, not a historical figure that is dead and gone, but the spirit of the Prophet is living with you. That's following the Sunnah of the Prophet. Not the beard, not the water, how you drink water, not the swag, the, the, the spirit of the Prophet. If he was living with you, would he like what you're doing? Would he like what you're deciding? Would he like what you're buying? What, would he like what you're spending your money on? Would he like the way you're spending your time? That's being mindful of the Prophet Okay. So, because if, if, you, if you don't learn that system of reverence and respect, you don't realize it but you will amount to nothing. You will think you're building, you think that you have social structures and goals and moral purposes, but it starts at the micro level. Okay. إِنَّ الَّذِينَ يُنَادُونَكَ مِنْ وَرَاءِ أَكْثَرُهُمْ لا يعقلون ولو أنهم صبروا حتى تخرج إليهم لكان خيرا لهم والله غفور رحيم okay. so those who call those who call upon you or call out to you من وراء الحجرات So the, the Prophet is in his private apartment. And those who call out, O Muhammad, come out. O Muhammad, we want to talk to you. And they should be patient until you come out to meet them. So, there is, I don't know if I wrote it somewhere. Um, Okay. Oh, sorry. Uh, yeah, that, that's why I'm. I I forgot a point. Please go, go back to verse three again. About lowering your voice. Notice this expression. 
والذين يغضون أصواتهم أصواتهم عند رسول الله أولئك الذين امتحن الله قلوبهم للتقوى. So Muhammad Asad translates امتحن الله قلوبهم للتقوى. That um, God has tested and opened to consciousness of God and opened their consciousness to God, in other words, what he's saying. And, and then there shall be forgiveness. Now, but you pause at that expression, Why? Um, imtihan al-qalb is the, the expression here is or the, 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 the pivotal point is that expression lil-taqwa for piety. Allah tested their hearts for piety. Um, it is like saying Allah molded their hearts through difficult tests why in order to achieve real taqwa so the expression lil taqwa lam at-ta'lil this lam lam at-ta'lil atat li al-wajib as they say in arabic so lam at-ta'lil is say, to say that this they have been tested for the purposes of achieving taqwa. And it warrants a pause because you say, I've tested you, or you'd say, I prepared you, I trained you for battle, right? I've armed you for victory. I supported you for X, Y, and Z. So here, Allah comes and says, what I've done by teaching you to control your impulse when it comes to proper reverence of Allah and the Prophet and especially the example given here is about the Prophet. What I've done is I've molded your heart through this example so you, that you can achieve real taqwa. Which is startling because it's like saying real taqwa, true piety, which is a consistent theme in Surah Al-Hujurat, by the way. Real piety is not going to be achieved 
unless the reverence of the Prophet and the ability to control your impulse when reverence is due is inside of you. And imtahan Allah, Allah tested them. The imtahan is when, like, for instance, you the, the, the way you purify minerals is through heat. That's called imtahan. So it is through the difficult test of demanding that you control your impulse and build up the system of reverence within you and the system of deference within you where you say, I know when it's appropriate to defer and who to defer to. And when Allah says imtahan, then it means Allah is saying, I know this is very difficult. But this is how I sear it. This is how I mold it. This is how I build it. So, now you go to those who call you from behind the private rooms. And there is a narrative that is rather interesting um, about this. Is that... um, well, there, 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 there are a few of them, but uh, okay. So, the delegation from Yamama. Yamama is a complicated tribe. I'm not going to get too much into the history of tribes, and and uh, I mean, although it's it's fascinating, and if when you are history, we would uh, anyway. So Yamama is a, is a complicated tribe. It's a large tribe, but it is a very Bedouin tribe that's gruff and hard and, you know, needed a lot of tenderizing. Islam, the values of Islam needed to... to to elevate them and civilize them. And so when the delegation comes, according to this narrative, that there is a well-known leader in Yamama and also a, a well-known poet called Al-Aqra. And Al-Aqra is, was a well-known pre-Islamic poet. I mean, not not famous among the, the the average Muslim scholar, but anyway, uh, Al-Aqra ibn Hamas. So anyway, Al-Aqra ibn Hamas arrives and he starts calling out, Muhammad, come out. Muhammad, where are you? The Prophet didn't answer sort of rude. He's, he's in his private quarters and there's a man standing there demanding that he comes out. And for the the habits of the Bedouins, well, I arrived in Medina with my delegation 
you must come out to meet me immediately. There should, you know, and meeting the 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 lower in ranks, the companions, and Ali ibn Abi Talib is 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 not good enough. Uh, we need Muhammad himself. You know, we want to talk to Muhammad about our conversion. But Al-Aqra turns out to have wanted something that is very Bedouin and very Arab. What he wanted is Mubarazat al-Tafakhur. He wanted to have a match where the first thing the tribe is going to do is present their poet poet to brag about the lineage and history and mythology of his tribe and compete with the poet representing Muslims in Medina, Hassan ibn Sabit. And in this competition, the two poets would go ahead in pre-Islamic practice. The irony is that tribes would do this and it was intended as something, as a gesture at the beginning of friendship. So friendship and relationships between tribes cannot be launched without this battle between the poets of each tribe bragging about the achievements and history and ancestry of their own tribe. But the irony is it would often backfire and lead to war because the poets, and then there would be huge disagreement as to who the winner is, and then there would be hard feelings because the poets would start going at each other. You know, well, my tribe is better than your tribe because your tribe, you know, is this and that. And very jahili, very tribal. But you know what? When I hear a lot of Muslims talk about their countries today, you know, my folks, you know, for instance, Egyptians talk about Egypt, Umad Dunya, and vis-a-vis, like I know some Egyptians who love Trump just because Trump humiliated Saudi Arabia when he said to the king, we protect you without us here two weeks. Uh, King, you must pay. And they're willing to forgive anything that Trump does just because he humiliated Saudi Arabia. And I'm just reminded they have reverted to Jahiliya in every sense of the word. It's just that at least the Jahilis, you know, what came out of it was good poetry. They don't even have that today. But... So Al-Aqra tells the, the prophet, we want this Mubaraza, we want this because we've arrived and we want you guys to understand how wonderful our tribe is and we want to hear what your poet has to say about you. And the prophet says, no, we don't engage in this anymore. The only... Um, the only parent is taqwa. And we don't talk about ancestry and we don't talk about our lineage and we don't talk about 
how we invaded this and we killed this and we've done this and so on. And, but what's interesting is Al-Akhra and Hassan ibn Sabit. Hassan ibn Sabit is the poet that usually defended Muslims or represented Muslims. Somehow end up going at it. Now, it's very interesting because the tradition doesn't tell us except that it happened later and it doesn't seem that the Prophet was around. So the Prophet refused to engage in it, but Hassan ibn Sabit and Al-Aqra somehow ended up going at it, going at it through poetry. So Al-Aqra recites poetry about how his tribe is, you know, superior to everyone on the face of the earth. And Hassan ibn Sabit is talking about we Muslims are this and we Muslims are that. And and that commentaries some of the reports say that the revelation of Surah Al-Hujurat up to that point that it was intended to condemn this incident. Again, make a long story short, I very much doubt, and the evidence is extremely weak, that the revelation was because of this. I don't doubt the historical event itself, but likely the historical event even took place after the revelation of Surah Al-Hujurat, not before. There is another narrative about, the, the, again, this ayah about nida' min wara' al-hujurat, those who call out to you, um, is that um, Muslims were raided upon, there, there was a, um, a tribe called um, uh, Hay Bani Ambar, Bani Ambar. So these folks, there were sheep grazing belonging to Ansar, some members of the Ansar in Medina, and the, these folks came and raided um, the flock and took off with um, so on. And so Muslims went out in what is called the Sariya, a, 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 a small platoon, to discipline them. Because if you don't take a military action against raiders, then in the law of the time, you become open, open season on you. And when the Muslim force approached Haybani uh, Ambar, these guys being sort of making their living out of highway robbery didn't have very high principles or morals. So Haybin Anbar, the men fled and left all their women and children behind. 
they didn't want, they knew that if the, the Muslims by then had a very fearsome reputation. They didn't think the Muslims were going to come after them, but Muslims did. And so they, they absconded and left. Um, so Muslims went back with the women and children as prisoners of war. They brought them back to Medina. And then the Banu Ambar sent a representative to negotiate with Muslims for the release of the, their family, their, their women and children, and whoever was captured. And upon arrival in Medina, the narrative goes, is that they started yelling out, to Muhammad, oh Muhammad, come out, we need to talk to you, we need to talk to you right now. And and that the narrative says that when the Prophet ﷺ came, they said we want to negotiate with you about terms of releasement. And the Prophet had already decided to release half of them for no return and so he negotiated with them about the releasing the other half for a, a, a sum of money, as was the practice back then. Um, and the narrative goes on to say that if they were more patient and were not obnoxious and rude, that the Prophet would have released the entire population of prisoners for nothing. So it is their impatience and intransigence that that sort of caused the Prophet to release half for nothing and half for ransom. This report is extremely doubtful. Now, for one thing, it doesn't tell us at all how do they know, how does the narrator know that the Prophet would have released the, the entire flock for nothing. And if it, it is the rudeness of these people that made Muslims say, okay, we'll only release half for nothing, but the other half you have to ransom. It doesn't, it doesn't tell us that. You know, there's no specifics, there are no details. The other thing is that it is, an, it compared to... The report of Al-Aqra bin Hamas, for instance, it's much weaker. And for an event that would have been so significant, um, um, you would have expected it to be reported by a far greater number of people and on, so that you have cumulative narrations. But you don't. It's it's pretty much an isolated narrative going through a, a, a particular chain of people. So while, again, I don't doubt that we know that Hay Bani Ambar was there, we know, we know who these people are, and we know that they convert to Islam eventually. Um, and I probably, you know, some... At some basic level, there's truth to them negotiating with Muslims for the release of their captives, whatever the terms of that negotiation was, 
is, is lost to history. Uh, but the fact that Banu Ambar converted to Islam shortly after it, it exemplifies something that we seek repeatedly in the Sira that people would be impressed by how Muslims treated the captives. So impressed that they would enter into Islam because of it. Uh, they, they sort of like, well, you know, because it, these people had actually, you know, sense of honor. If, if you treated my family well, it's something that I remember, something that would affect me, something that would have a very serious impact on me. And so we, and, and you know, again, and if we if we study the Sira, then we talk about the details of so many of these examples where treatment of family or tribe members leads to spreading the God, God's word, humane and, and, and dignified treatment. So whatever the terms of the release were, it, obviously I mean, it, it didn't make Ben Ambar sworn enemies. It actually brought them to the fold uh, shortly after. But as an occasion for revelation of Surah Al-Hujurat, I doubt. Um, or, or these parts of the, of this part of Surah Al-Hujurat, I very much doubt. Especially when we get to why this surah is known as Surah Al-Hujurat. Now, notice here, what it's saying is. Those who do not, in our modern language, right? That those who do not how to respect, do not know how to respect private space, and they do not know how to show sufficient or proper deference to private space. And those who do not, inside of them, know the difference between dealing with a prophet, the same idea of reverence and respect within society, that there is a problem. Now, keep this in mind because the idea of private space and the prohibition against spying and snooping and backbiting, in other words, violating the intimacies of human beings is central to the surah. So it starts out by giving you an example of this type of reverence and respect before it goes on to show you how this is a more general abstract ethic. So it, it's, it's, it's very interesting because it goes from the micro level and will take you to the more general level, but it, it sort of exemplifies it for you with these concrete examples 
of can you control yourself? Which is amazing because, yeah, the challenge in backbiting is a level of self-control and discipline to entertain the self and busy the self with the self rather than the other turns out to be one of the toughest challenges that human beings confront. Let's take a short break. Okay. So then, Ya ayyuha al-lazina amanu Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim Allahumma salli wa sallam barik ala Muhammad wa ala Again Allah uses the intimate call Ya ayyuha al-lazina amanu And takes you to another point of social ethics الرَّاشِدُونَ فضلاً من الله ونعمة والله عليم حكيم So 6 and 7 There is um There is a, a group of traditions um, about six, verse six, because the, the, the meaning is clear enough that if you receive information. It is incumbent upon you to investigate, to consider the source of the information. And that if there is any reason for you to doubt the source of information, you must investigate. And to be aware because if you act upon information unjustly, the consequences could be not good for you, meaning you bear responsibility for acting upon suspicion or doubt and so on. 
So, um, there is a a man called Al Haris bin Durar al Khuzai. And Ben al Mustalik, which is a, a again another tribal group, and there is years earlier, and a military confrontation with this tribe Ben al Mustalik, and they convert to Islam eventually. But. So Al-Haris bin Durar al-Khuzai, who's from Banu al-Mustaliq, and he comes to, um, he's representing Banu al-Mustaliq, and he comes to Medina. And he had converted to Islam, and he, after staying in Medina for a while, he tells the Prophet that he is going to make it a point to teach Islam to members of his tribe and to sort of, you know, try, uh, dedicate himself to teaching his tribe about their religion. And the tradition says that he also makes an agreement with Medina that he will be the person responsible for collecting the taxes due to the central government in Medina. Because once you become Muslim, you pay your taxes to the central government of Medina. What's interesting, of course, is that in books of tradition, it says that he agreed to collect the zakah. But this is a this is a another issue. I'm I'm convinced that when it said zakah, this point and early on in Islamic sources, it didn't just mean the two and a half percent that is due every. Every, every year. But it included all forms of haraj, all forms of taxations. Anyway, so he would become the person responsible for collecting uh, the zakah, and then Medina would send a representative to come receive this money and take it back to the central government in Medina, sort of to the public treasury. And as the narrative goes that Al-Haris bin Durar waits for the representative from Medina when the time comes time to hand over the uh, money from the treasury um, a, a representative from Medina doesn't arrive. They had agreed on a certain time and a certain place, and he doesn't arrive. And keeps waiting for him, and no one shows up. And Haris bin Durar tells his folks in Banu Mustalak 
I, I know the prophet, and this is not like him. If he says he'll send a representative, we, we agreed on a time and a place, and something is wrong. And Al-Haris bin Daraz starts worrying that the prophet or the government in Medina, the central government in Medina, is, is, it, are upset with him or with Ben al-Mustalaq. Why haven't they sent a representative? So eventually he decides to travel to Medina himself. Meanwhile, what he doesn't know is that the Prophet ﷺ indeed did appoint a man, uh, Al-Walid bin Uqba bin Abi Mu'ayt. Al-Walid bin Uqba bin Abi Mu'ayt is appointed as the person who bears the responsibility of going to Banu Mustalak and collecting the taxes. But what happens then is a very in interesting historical point. Because it is clear that Al-Walid bin Uqba doesn't make it to Banu al-Mustalaq. The question is why. He starts on his journey to Banu al-Mustalaq to according to, to the agreed upon time and place to collect the taxes. But he turns around and he comes back to Medina and he tells the prophet that he didn't that he he didn't continue on with the journey because Banul Mustalak um Have the, have he becomes convinced that they have hostile intentions, and that they intend to remember. I told you at the beginning that some of the prophet's delegates, whether teachers or otherwise, would be betrayed, and would be murdered or tortured. Well, Al Walid bin Uqba apparently becomes convinced that these this was the intent of Banu Mustalak. And that Banu Mustalak, it was a trap that he would go to Banu Mustalak and that they would kill him or torture him. And so he turns around and he tells the folks in Medina and the Prophet that Banu Mustalak have have hostile intention and that this was a trap and they don't intend to pay the taxes and so on. And when Al-Haris bin Darar arrives in Medina. Directly, he goes to see the Prophet, and the Prophet says, do you know that we were preparing a military posse to, that we, it was reported to us that Al-Walid bin Uqba had said that you, you've turned hostile and this was, you know, treachery was involved and that you violated your agreements and that basically we, we, we were going to send a military force 
to find out what's going on. And, of course, Al-Haraz bin Dirar says that's absolutely not true. We, we have not reneged. In fact, I was waiting for the tax collector. He never arrived. And what's interesting about this narrative, then, is what happened that made Walid bin Uqba convinced that Banu Mustalik had hostile intentions. And what makes the, the, this even more interesting, it, is, it would have been possible to say that Al-Walid bin Uqba simply um, you know, was an immoral, unethical human being, except for the fact that Al-Walid bin Uqba actually, as a person, has a good track record in serving the Islamic cause. So he's not, he's not a, um, a, a, a person with, with questionable credibility. Some sources say that as he approached the area of Banu Mustalak that a faction of Banu Mustalak who didn't like the authority of Harith bin Darar, didn't like the authority of Harith bin Darar, and didn't like the fact that Harith bin Darar was collecting taxes for the central, that they preempted the journey and threatened him or somehow scared him off. Now, why is this significant? Well, in part because what the Quran says, in ja'akum fasiqun binabak fatabayanu. If a fasiq, and a fasiq is an inequitous person, is a person who is a sinner. So is, if this is, in fact, the occasion for revelation, for Allah to call someone like Al-Walid bin Uqba, a fasiq, is a very big deal. And is he a fasiq because he didn't do his due diligence? So if... The, the, the sort of ethical inquiry and the legal inquiry is failure to discharge your obligations to verify the facts what makes you a fasic or not a fasic so it is not the fact that you are a person of questionable character or not questionable character, because Walid bin Uqba was not a person of questionable character. But it is if the circumstances should inform you that this person did not do their due diligence, obliviousness to the facts, and if this was the occasion, and if they would have acted on the information that Al-Walid bin Uqba and possibly, and possibly, 
it's possible that there would have been some type of military confrontation out of this misunderstanding. And most Muslim scholars said the answer is yes. That when the Quran says, the Quran is partly telling you, consider who you're getting the information from. But especially telling you, consider whether the person communicating the information has was in a position or has in fact performed due diligence in verifying the veracity of the information and that your failure to engage in this process of satisfying yourself that the information you are receiving is credible. And if you act upon this information, then you in turn incur a sin because you should have known. And in the Islamic tradition, Muslims, especially in a book like Hiya Alum Din, if you read how much Ghazali wrote about this, he wrote pages and pages and many tells you many, many, many narratives and many reports about your obligation in, in, in the same way that Allah anchors you in a sense of reverence as to what Allah wants and what the Prophet wants, what the Prophet would do, what would the Prophet would expect. Allah anchors you in self-control, control the tone of your voice, control your attitude, know who you're speaking to, know who you're dealing with. Allah anchors you in rules of etiquette that are socially defined. Allah also anchors you in an obligation not to be a lightweight who is swayed one direction because of rumors and another direction because of rumors. Conscientiousness in the way you make decisions and the way you take action based on these decisions. Okay, and and then this point is brilliantly underscored by saying that be understand what it means now, sort of understand your historical moment. Understand what it means to have the prophet of God amongst you. Now, in, of course, in retrospect now, we can think back and say, wow, so this is being said because Allah knows that this prophet will not be amongst them very long. To have the prophet of Allah amongst you and that the presence of this prophet 
amongst you has saved you from numerous follies because if this prophet was a lightweight and had acted upon a lot of what you've told him, if he would have in fact reacted to the rumors that you conveyed to him, you would have experienced a lot of hardship. So it's, it's like saying the consequences of not verifying your sources and not being morally conscientious on the flow of information and the processing of information is, it could be very disastrous. And know that you have a special blessing that Allah habbaba ilaykum al-iman wa zayyanahu fi qulubikum wa karraha ilaykum al-kufra wal-fusuqa wal-asyam that for you, Allah blessed you with something very special. That Allah made Iman something that your hearts are attracted to. And made it sort of intervened to make that marriage between you and Iman and the special relationship that exists in this special moment and that Allah for so many of you made al-kufr wal-fusuq wal-asyan these three things kufr is has to do with your heart fusuq most commentators says in this context has to do with what your tongue utters like lying and, and like backbiting. And Asyan has to do with actions you commit. Al-Amal. So that the fact that for this, so many of you, this core group, Allah had you must understand that this is a special blessing. As numerous scholars of Islam have commented over centuries, the challenge for every Muslim individual or collectivity every Muslim ummah, every age, is how to be mindful of the Prophet ﷺ enough so that Allah would bestow that blessing of hubbul iman so that Allah would, instead of making us full of doubt and anxiety and confusion that Allah would 
would the blessing of Allah would intervene to quieten our hearts and to comfort our spirits. Okay. So, so, so far, the picture of the context of Surah Al-Hujrat is building up, right? So, there are delegations. There are people that don't know Islamic ethics very well and need to be educated and and. Uh, disciplined into the importance of social ethics in Islamic spaces, the importance of people learning what we can now call the Islamic way of life, if you will, meaning Islamic morality and ethics. And we see that by the ninth century Hijra, that you know, all we the picture of the challenges are start becoming quite clear. In that there is a a it's a complex situation with numerous challenges, and that the the core challenge is to maintain the ethical purpose of the Islamic trajectory. A new layer is then introduced to us in the following ayah. This is now nine. وَإِن طَائِفَتَانِ مِنَ الْمُؤْمِنِينَ اِخْتَتَلُوا فَصْلِحُوا بَيْنَهُمَا فَإِنْ بَغَتْ حَدَاهُمَا عَلَى الْأُخْرَى فَقَاتِلُوا الَّتِي تَبْغِي حَتَّى تَفِيئَ إِلَى أَمْرِ اللَّهِ فَإِنْ فَاءَتْ فَاصْلِحُوا بَيْنَهُمَا بِالْعَدْلِ وَاقْسِطُوا إِنَّ اللَّهَ يُحِبُّ الْمُقْسِطِينَ إِنَّمَا الْمُؤْمِنُونَ أَخْوَةِ فَاصْلِحُوا بَيْنَ أَخَوَيْكُمْ وَاتَّقُوا اللَّهَ لَعَلَّكُمْ تُرْحَمُونَ Then Allah in 10 talks about what if in fact you're confronted with a situation where the social ethics fail and Muslims end up fighting with each other. And there are quite a bit of narratives about this area. Um, and if I would summarize them for you, I will start out with the least authentic of them. Many scholars, I think incorrectly, said that this ayah was a revelation that preempted or that was the occasion for this revelation was the fitna that would occur between 
the Sahaba, the Imam Ali, and those who rebelled against them years later. So that Allah revealed this ayah for the specific purpose of addressing this situation that would occur years later. And this ayah did, in fact, play a very big role in the interpretive dynamics that takes place um, in, in, the, in the big fitna. But as an occasion for revelation, that's not, you know, I, just the evidence is not there. There is another narrative um, that um, Sa'ad bin Ibadah, one of the well-known companions, um, had fallen ill. And the Prophet ﷺ said, let's go visit Sa'ad bin Ibadah. On the way to Sa'ad bin Ibadah, they passed by, the, 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 they would pass by the home and diwaniya of Abdullah ibn Ubay. Abdullah ibn Ubay is known as the head or the chief of the hypocrites in Medina. The dissenting group that we talked about. And as he saw the prophet passing by and the prophet was riding on a donkey Abdullah ibn Ubay made a rude comment he said the smell of your donkey is obnoxious and is bothering us so keep your donkey away from us your donkey stinks, in other words. And uh, when he said that, Abdullah bin Rawaha, who was among the Ansar, got very upset and yelled back at Abdullah bin Ubay, the Prophet's donkey smells better than you. And when that happened, then the supporters of Abdullah bin Ubay um, went to blows with the supporters of um, Abdullah bin Rawaha and the, the Ansar, in other words. Now, this and that, this was the occasion. This why this why this ayah was revealed. Now, it's very interesting, of course, because we have so many versions of this tradition but it, it shows us several things that whether this was an occasion for revelation or not, it's probably just from how often it was reported, it's probably a historical event. It probably did happen in some version or form or another. But so, so late into the game, even by the ninth century Hijra, this, there's the opposition group still exists and it doesn't just exist, but it's going strong. 
because there is a sufficient number of them to come to the defense of Abdullah ibn Ubay and to insist that Abdullah ibn Ubay had the right to tell the Prophet, keep your stinky donkey away, and to go to blows with Muslims. And then if and the number of scholars that said that this ayah applies to this situation is very interesting because then it's referring to the hypocrites as mu'minun and even as ikhwa, as brothers. So this in Islamic law and Islamic ethics occupies it, it, great deal of attention and becomes a, a so although the party if, that is in the wrong could be even offensive towards to this extent you know sort of obnoxious but still there's an obligation to make peace and they still count as your brothers. Well, that has profound implications for what do you do with dissenters in an Islamic ummah. And the limits of the right to dissent, or the, in this case, the level of freedom to dissent. So there's a third narrative Um, and this third narrative again involves Abdullah ibn Ubay but in the third narrative the Prophet again went to visit Sa'ad bin Ubadah and that after visiting Sa'ad who was ill People sat down to listen to the Prophet, and the Prophet started talking. And the Abdullah ibn Ubay responded or interrupted the Prophet and said, Why don't you stay home? <clears throat> and whoever wants to listen to you can then go to listen to you. But don't come here. And disrupt or interrupt or, um, yeah, dis disrupt. Uh, but don't come here, basically, and ruin the mood for us. So, you know, just if someone wants to listen to you, they can go find you and, and seek you out. But you shouldn't come to where we are and basically impose whatever you're saying upon us. And uh, then this descended into a fight between the supporters of Abdullah ibn Ubay and the supporters of the Prophet. But this narrative is even, even more, because here, Abdullah ibn Ubay is not objecting to the smell of a donkey. 
Abdullah ibn Ubay is actually directly challenging the Prophet and saying, we don't want to listen to you. We, we, you know, you're, you're bothering us. And still then the Quranic prescription to come and say, they're still your brothers and make peace between them and calls them mu'minun was something that, I mean, if you're, if you're really interested in this, you can read the, the, uh, the book I wrote on rebellion and Islamic law because I, I go into all these reports, which I wrote many, many years ago, but, uh, and, you know, just so much on them. It is very difficult to know. I mean, it, it, it is what is clear is that even this late, in the ninth century Hijra, the dissenting faction, after a long history of even conspire, was drawing from battle, conspiring with the Jewish tribes, posing a consistent narrative of opposition to the Prophet continued to exist with rights in Medina. And we're not imprisoned, we're not exiled, we're not persecuted. And whether you do believe that these ayat apply to them so that they are should be called Ukhwa, which is very difficult for me to, to accept the idea that people that are this insolent with the Prophet should be continue to be called brothers. Um, so I, I must confess that, you know, I, I find it, and I've always found it, after 30 years of research, because the, the Rebellion book was written like 30 years ago, um, I'm still very uncomfortable with the idea, a very liberal idea, that people like that can be referred to as brothers. But I must admit that it is sort of a gut feeling if I would go with scholarship alone, with objective data, I would have to accept that they are called brothers by the Quran. It, 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 I mean, a view that is even too tolerant for me, for me to, to, to be able to, to just comfortably digest. But note that regardless, what it comes and says is that you have an obligation. If all breaks down and there is a disagreement or conflict between Muslims. Your obligation is to call them all to unite upon the principle of God. The priority here is agreeing on a mechanism to, re to resolve the conflict and the principle of unity. 
if a party refuses to, to come to the principle of unity or to accept the idea of or to, to anchor themselves around the, the, the principle of God, then you have an obligation to all unite against the deviant party But justice remains a prevailing imperative because فَصْلِحُوا بَيْنَهُمَا بِالْعَدْلِ وَأَقْصِطُوا إِنَّ اللَّهَ يُحِبُّ الْمُقْصِطِينَ So the way this conflict must be resolved is injustice. The only decisive principle to resolve the conflict is the overriding principle of justice. Waqsitu, which be, again, and be fair. So, you are fighting that, the, the party that says justice or no justice, we don't want peace. But once this party accepts the principle of peace, you must rule justly. The, the, the whole conflict must be resolved through justice. Which, of course, begs the question of all the complexities involved in vetting out justice. How do we understand justice? How do we create the institutional infrastructure for justice? How do we institutionalize justice so that justice, the more we can objectify justice, the more successful we are in the, in, in the pursuit of justice? Because as long as justice remains a matter of personal perspective, it is not a resolution at all the more you are able to convince the parties that justice is more than simply a matter of personal subjective perception through institutional means, the more you are successful in the enterprise of justice itself. Another thing to point out about um, this area is that this ayah played a pivotal role in the now lost ethic of dealing with rebellion in Islamic law. I'll sum it up in this. Imam Ali was confronted with the rebellion of the Khawarij. And among others, of course. But anyway, the, the, the stick was the Khawarij. So the Khawarij refused to obey Imam Ali and rebel against him. And he is asked, are they kuffar? 
and he says, no, they're not kuffar. They, 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 in fact, they worship more than we do. And they ask, are they, um, I forgot now, I think for Saq or something like that. And he says, again, more or less the same answer, no, they're not. And he says, they are our brothers who have transgressed against us. And then he says a statement that becomes very important in the creation of the jurisprudence of rebellion in Islamic law. He says, you, lakum alayna thalath. You have three rights over us. La namnaakum masajid Allah. We, we can't bar you from worshipping in Allah's mosques. وَلَا نَمْنَعْكُمُ الْفِيَأْ مَا دَامَتْ أَيْدِيكُمْ مَعْنَا And if you join us in battles, in other words, if you are, if you are part of our army in confronting our external enemy, we cannot deny you your share of payments. So in other words, we treat you like we treat everyone else. وَلَا نَبْدَعْكُمْ بِقِتَالٍ and we don't attack you first. This, the reason I underscore this today is this tradition of Imam Ali that basically says the state doesn't spill the blood of dissenters unless they begin with violence. And then you use violence only to repel their aggression. And it goes beyond that you can't kill the prisoners, you can't kill the wounded, you can't enslave them, a whole, whole set of rules. There is another tradition attributed to the Prophet, a false tradition, that calls the Khawarij the dogs of hellfire and the true kafirs of the ummah. And in Islamic tradition, which could not, Imam Ali was more knowledgeable about the sunnah of the prophet than anyone else. And there is no way he would have said about the Khawarij that you are our brothers, but you and you have the right to worship in our mosque and you et cetera, et cetera if in fact the Prophet had said that they were no longer Muslims. And anyway, there were no Khawarij by, at the time the Prophet was alive. But according to this tradition, the Prophet sort of predicts that after I die, there will come people who are the dogs of hellfire and so on. Today, remarkably, remarkably, the tradition that calls the Khawarij the dogs of hellfire and that calls them kafirs, and that says that basically you can kill them, has been used by this Egyptian government against the Muslim Brotherhood, has been used by Haftar and the clergy of Haftar against the government in Trablus, 
the, 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 the horrendous human rights abuses have been justified on the basis of that tradition has been used by the pro-Emirati Yemeni forces against everyone. So constantly in modern Islam, whenever you want to kill your, your political opponent, you call them Khawarish Kilab Kilab Nar. That they're the dogs of hellfire and they're the Khawarij and and then you start pontificating and, and you hear the same thing from Saudiya that they, in Islam the Khawarij should be, just be killed and and then they call you know anyone that disagrees with the Saudi government Khawarij, anyone that disagrees with the Egyptian government Khawarij, anyone that disagrees with the authority of Haftar in Libya Khawarij. Anyone that disagrees with the pro-Emirati uh, um, government, Khawarij. And within all of that, of course, no mention is ever made of the far more Islamically anchored tradition of Al-Imam Ali and the way he clearly said, Khawarij or no Khawarij, you can't just simply spill their blood. I never thought when I wrote the rebellion book that I would witness a day where so many Muslims have lost their lives on the basis of an, a clearly invented tradition about how dissenters, people who dissent from whatever government there is, are simply Khawarij and you can just simply kill them in a summary fashion because they have no rights and they're just dogs of hellfire. I, I never thought, but, you know, when, when things are messed up, they're really messed up. But you can, I can't possibly betray to you how many Muslims have lost their lives. Even someone like Ali ibn Jum'ah the, the former Mufti of Egypt, when he was telling the Egyptian military that they can massacre people on Rabah at will and they don't have to worry about it, he again resorted to that tradition, which I know he knows is a fabrication. All of that is part of the intellectual culture of this ayah. But notice that even in this ayah, it never, again, remarkably, those people that go around and say, well, we can go and massacre people in Rabah because they, they or uh, Salman al-Odak can be executed because he is a dissenter against the government. Or there's an in you know the uh, or all the people who've been executed in Libya and Yemen because they rebelled against the government. Look at the ayah. Look look at the language of verse nine. If two parties disagree, the moral obligation, the ethical obligation. Is to establish justice between them. It doesn't talk about murdering either of the parties. And only if a party 
you are allowed to fight them in order to bring them to a just resolution, not in order to bring them to your will, not in order to dominate them, not in order to vanquish them. A critical social ethic and a social ethic if Muslims would have learned so much social trauma and political trauma and bloodshed would have been avoided in her, their history. Okay. Then and this is underscored in mu'minuna ikhwa the overriding principle is that believers are brothers. Brothers and sisters. Ikhwa can go masculine or feminine. And the obligation is islah al-ikhwa. Is the obligation is to do, to reconcile and to bring brethren together. The attitude is markedly egalitarian. And mind you, and this is the thing that blows your mind, it is egalitarian after it had just said that the prophet is present amongst you. It could have said, well, the prophet is with you, and anyone that dares disagree with the prophet is a miserable, horrible human being that should be killed and vanquished and made to disappear off the face of the earth. But it doesn't. And it emphasizes that even with the prophet present, what the the decisive yardstick is the yardstick of justice and equity and the principle that whatever is done whatever is said you are brothers and sisters final point about this before I move on and notice that it underscores the principle of fraternity amongst Muslims at a time that Islam is expanding. So it's like, yeah, I know Islam is expanding. I know you have a lot of social problems. I know you have a lot of challenges, but you can't lose sight that when you are brothers and sisters. That is the bond of Islam. Okay. Then it moves on with, again, like a code of social ethics.
لا يسخر قوم من قوم عسى أن يكونوا خيرا منه ولا نساء من نساء عسى أن يكون خيرا منهم ولا تلمزوا أنفسكم ولا تنابزوا بالألقاب بئس الإسم الفسوق بعد الإيمان ومن لم يتب فأولئك هم الظالمون This is 11 There are many reports about this area and what could have possibly been an occasion for revelation or uh, this familiar theme now. Um, um, that Okay, so, so some reports say that some of the wives of the Prophet used to make fun of Umm Salama, who's also a wife of the Prophet, because she was very short. Um, other reports say that Safiya, who's one of the wives of the Prophet, um, complained to the prophet that his wives sometimes put her down by calling her um, by saying you daughter of a Jew and the prophet's response his reported response is actually quite because he told her, she said, they told me you are a daughter of a Jew and they mean it in a derogatory manner. And the prophet says, well, you should answer them and tell them, I am the daughter of Harun and my uncle is Musa and my husband is Muhammad. Harun, of course, the prophet Harun and the Prophet Musa and my husband. So in other words, it's, it, his response is, you. in fact, you have nothing to be ashamed of. If anything, you have many honors being a Jew or, you know, depending on whether you, it's a religion or a race or whatever. Um, there are reports that Zainab, um, that sorry, that Aisha used to make fun of um, Zainab uh, bint Khuzayma. Uh, and again, Prophet, um, Aisha, Prophet of the uh, wife of the Prophet, and Zainab bint Khuzayma, another wife of the Prophet. Um, there are reports that. Well, there, this report actually doesn't involve the wives of the Prophet. Um, that um, Thabit ibn Qais um, this is the fellow who's hard of hearing. So he would uh, 
because he was hard of hearing, he would always come and he would want to sit as close to the prophet as possible so he can hear. So when he would come, he would always tell people, you know, okay, can I have a space close to the prophet so I can hear? So he... Uh, um, sees some, you know, he asks someone to make space for him to, to move or to make space so he can sit next to the prophet so he can hear. And the person he asked was a, I don't remember his name, but he was a, a new convert to Islam anyway, or a recent convert. And the man was sort of gruff, and he looks at, um, Thabit ibn Qais, and he doesn't respond, he doesn't answer him first. And then Thabit ibn Qais sort of asks him again, and then he finally get, tells him, go away. Yeah, some, some is like, you know, when you call someone um, deaf or mute, you know, it's, it's sort of a derogatory way of referring to someone who can't hear. And Thabit ibn Qais is hurt, and he, you know, hurts him and he withdraws and so on. And so all of these reports are contenders or reported as contenders for occasions of revelation. The insults against or the making fun of Sophia, the making fun of Zainab bint Khudayma, the, um, uh, the making fun of Umm Salama, the making fun or the insult of Thabit ibn Qusay. And, you know, what they point out to is something that we know about society at the time, is that it was not at all uncommon in society at the time and even for centuries later even to, to mock people by their physical defects. Um, whether how tall, whether they're blind, whether they're deaf, whether they're mute, whatever physical feature that you could pick on, that was not at all uncommon. And that The Quran comes and underscores what already the Prophet has been preaching or teaching that mocking people, pointing out to their defects as a way of putting them down is against Islamic ethics. And what's very interesting is Asa and Yakunu Khairan Minhum. See, a lot of modern Muslims misunderstand this because they the old Arabic. Asa and Yakunu Khairan Minhum doesn't say don't mock because maybe maybe the person you're mocking is better than you. That's the way that it's normally understood in the modern. 
What it's saying is, don't mock lest the person that you mock becomes better than you. Now, why is the difference so significant? Because of the ethic that comes along with it. The Prophet, commenting on this, said, لا تظهر الشماتة لا تظهر الشماتة لأخيك فيعافيه الله ويبتليك that if you mock your brother or your sister whatever feature you are mocking Allah could afflict you with it so عسى أن يكون خير منهم means Lest Allah takes it, the thing that you are putting down, he makes it a part of you. So, Ibn Mas'ud, for instance, commented on this. He said, لو سخرت من كلب لخشيت أن يسخطني الله كلبا that I don't even mock a dog because I fear that God, if I do, God will turn me into a dog. Th- that's sort of the... the, the um, oh, and as to the... Um, I forgot one other contender for occasion for revelation. Is that, remember that delegation from Bani Tamim that I told you about. Well... Banu Tamim, as I told you, they were gruff Arabs, and they were rather known for their gruffness. So not only did they come and invite the Prophet to a duel of poetry uh, where they brag about their lineage, not only did they call upon the Prophet to come out and talk to them immediately, but apparently also when Banu Tamim arrived, they noticed um, the group of people living in the vicinity of, in the mosque in Medina, people like Bilal and Suhaib, um, Khabbab, um, and so on. People who were very poor. And Banu Tamim started mocking these group of people. And according to this tradition, the Quran comes and says, no, you want to be Muslims, you can't do that. You, you can't, it's, it's, Islam doesn't, if you're going to be Muslims, you can't mock the poor. Again, all of them, I mean, any of them, do I really believe that any of them was the occasion for revelation? No. All of them are probably events. But the Muslim mind realized that this revelation applies to all of them. And so they can be taken as demonstrative examples of what the ayat apply to. Um, this, the, the, the Prophet has a number of traditions 
where he underscores that, of course, if you mock someone for being short, it's not that Allah, you wake up one day and find yourself short. But other than the sin in the hereafter, Allah is likely to afflict you in due time with the type of ailment or affliction or problem that gives you the same sense of inferiority that you inflicted upon others. And this was a, a firmly established Islamic ethic. So I even remember like my grandmother uh, would always, you know, don't make fun of, like when kids play, don't make fun of anyone because, you know, Allah will turn and make you suffer what you make. Of course, it's amazing that it still existed by the time my grandmother was around, but I haven't encountered it in anyone in the last 30 years. Um, so I, I don't know. I mean, it, it, that must, the, the, the uh, flood of westernization and so-called modernization might have completely made it vanish from our psyche. Okay. وَلَا تَلْمَذُوا أَنفُسَكُمْ وَلَا تَنَابَذُوا بِالْأَلْقَابِ بِئْسَ إِسْمُ الْفُسُوقِ بَعْدِ الْإِيمَانِ وَمَنْ لَمْ يَتُبْ فَأُولَاءَكُ هُمُ الظَّالِمُونَ This is 11. And don't call each other names the, the important thing I want to underscore here again as part of the Islamic ethics that developed from these Quranic prescriptions is you would find in so many Muslim writings and it was a part of our sort of moral consciousness is that it was it, it was reported as as a as a lesson attributed to a number of companions it was reported as a statement of a sage without a specific companion but it it was discussed in so many of these books on social ethics and in islamic uh, interpretive tradition that the believers are supposed to be as if a single person so if you insult or demean or mock a believer, it is as if you've insulted and demeaned yourself. The aspiration is that the, the, that you would, the level of intimacy you would feel towards one another is to that extent. That when you think of an insult, say, I'm insulting fundamentally someone who's part of me. Of course, I don't need to tell you what happened to that ethic. Um, but the other part that is 
worth understanding is that this is a tradition often that goes back to Hosefa that a man who's again if we do the Sira we'll be able to talk about Hosefa anyway so Hosefa goes and complains to the Prophet and he says to him I have an unclean tongue meaning I utter obscenities a lot I cuss out people. I curse a lot. And how do I solve this problem? And the Prophet ﷺ gives them a prescription that was a part ingrained in the fabric of Muslim culture for many centuries. And he told them, Hosefa, how often do you say astaghfirullah? And I don't remember how many times he tells him. He says, every time you utter an obscenity, for every obscenity a hundred times, astaghfirullah. And every time you think of an obscenity, instead of uttering it, say astaghfirullah. So, it is remarkable that for centuries, this was like, as you know, as as common as people would grow up knowing about. I don't know what do people know about these days, Popeye, the sailor man. <laughs> uh, you know, <laughs> it's old. Oh, okay. <laughs> but so you you say you, you know for every uh, for every cuss you, you, you say a hundred times astaghfirullah and that and the idea that that it, it it's not a matter of affectations it's, it, and and we'll get to that in a second it's not a matter of displays it's not a matter of you know impressing anyone but it is between you and your sense of, again, what would the Prophet expect from you if you were in the Prophet's company? Um, Okay. So, mocking obscenities and this is described as ismul fusuq, that mocking and obscenities is a form of fisk, ba'd al-iman. And that if you don't repent, these are truly the unjust. And then, ya ayyuhal ladhina amanu, اجتنبوا كثيرا من الظن إن بعض الظن إثم ولا تجسسوا ولا يخطب بعضكم بعضا أيحب أحدكم أن يأكل لحم أخيه ميتا فكريهتموه واتقوا الله إن الله تواب رحيم
It's it's nine forty. Should I stop and continue on Tuesday? Because I don't know if I can. I mean, I can finish by ten, but I would be rushing it. Uh, most of the people online ran away anyway, so. Um, my respects to those of you who haven't run away. Um, okay. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, we'll do we'll do one more A and then we'll stop. <laughs> By popular demand. Okay, so now twelve. So immediately you you're struck by the, the three. To avoid speculation, which remind us of the not too far away prescription of the duty to verify, but as a general matter, kathiran min is not the recognition that sometimes you have to make decisions based on incomplete information. So not all dhan, dhan is anything less than certainty. So it is the type of information or type of data that makes you not absolutely sure, but the preponderance of belief is such and such. It, it's, I think it is the case that X, Y, and Z. And Allah comes and says, warn, warns you that there is always this risk is that when you say, I think, I believe, and if you think and you believe and you keep it to yourself, there's no sin. But if you think and you believe and you communicate it or you act upon it, there is a risk. And the risk is that you are committing a sin. If you are acting unjustly. If in fact, what you think is without foundation and what you believe is incorrect. And if the decision is indeed wrongful. So Allah says, keep in mind, there is that risk. But this is compounded with other norms that bond with it like a molecular structure. Don't spy. 
And Tajassus here, normally when we talk in the West, in English about spying, spying is violating the intimacy of someone to extract, to find out information. So you pierce the veil of privacy. But Tajassus is a broader concept in Arabic and in Islamic law and in Islamic ethics. It is not just piercing the expectation of privacy. It is not just going into the hujurat. But tajassus is includes the deliberate effort to find out information about individuals for unjust causes and for most Islamic ethicists or for no cause. So the gathering of information simply to satisfy your curiosity or the gathering of information to further harm, and furthering harm could also mean damaging the reputation of, when you have no grounds to damage the reputation of someone. So if I am, if I'm gathering information to know if I should go to a certain doctor for treatment, and I want to know if this doctor is good, that's not what tajassus is. Tajassus is when you are, or, you know, I want to know if I should hire a lawyer. So I go and I'm getting information about the performance of this lawyer. Tajassus is when you are, is when you are seeking to find information. Do you, you either, to pursue unjust causes like damaging the reputation of a person or in the opinion of most or for the purposes of engaging in entertainment ghaiba. So you are chatting about someone just as a form of entertainment. So I guess tajassus would include what we today would call stalking, whether I mean physical stalking or cyber stalking or whatever. But it's remarkable that in the Quranic ethic, the social ethics that the Quran leaves us with, and sort of like a a legacy it, it, it entrusts us with, is don't spy don't turn into your, it's yourselves into sort of lookout eyes where, you, where a human being feels that the eyes of others upon them, keeping track of their faults. I mean, when, when you get to the, to the bottom line, is that it, that is not conducive to the Quranic idea of brotherhood and sisterhood amongst you. And it's not conducive to the idea that your honor is part of my honor and your reputation is part of my reputation. That if in fact 
the idea is that we are always looking at well, what are your short shortcomings, what are my shortcomings, in order to constantly keep an air of competition and an air of who is better than who. It doesn't take a genius to realize what does that do to the fabric of society. Now, Ghiba, of course, is what we uh, uh, backbiting is, is, and there is a famous hadith that, I mean, it it raises a lot of complicated issues that, but it's often cited that if you talk about someone and that if that whether you say what is in fact the truth about them um but they don't if you talk about someone negatively but what you say about them is the truth so that's ghaibah and if you talk about them negatively and what you're saying about them is not true it's even worse than ghaibah that hadith i mean it it's it is it, it should be understood with qualifications that so much depends on the purpose of the speech so again if i'm talking about a doctor and the reason i'm talking about this doctor is to make an assessment whether I should seek treatment with the doctor. That's not what the hadith is talking about. Or if I'm talking about a political candidate, and the reason I'm talking about the political candidate is to decide whether to vote for them or not vote for them. That's not what the hadith is talking about. The clearest example of classic type situation is when you are talking about someone in a way that they would deem hurtful, whether true or untrue, simply because of your loss of moral control upon yourself. So, go back to the beginning of Surah Al-Hujrat, because Surah Al-Hujrat is like a tight glove, all fitting within. We all have vanities. In the same way that you might lack self-control of proper reverence, with the prophet, you might lack self-control when you talk about the other. So if you are motivated by jealousy, then that's the improper ghaib. If you are motivated by boredom, that's ghaib. If you are motivated by a sense of anger, 
that but that has no constructive purpose. You're just angry. If you are motivated by a sense of spite, but again, it has no constructive purpose. It's not that you're making a decision whether to hire someone, whether to vote for someone, whether to study with someone. You are simply vetting. Now, how does it all fit together? The worst khaybah is that which is based on dhan. It's like gradations. So it all feeds within each other. If what is involved is dhan, speculative thinking, hearsay, information that you are actually not certain about, plus information obtained through the ethic of tajassus, plus these two things led to the act of actually backbiting someone. So all these three are involved. Most scholars say that's a kabira. Then that becomes a major sin. A kabira min kabir. So that's like high on the scale. Then you go into a continuum. Low on the scale is a ghayba in which did not involve tajassus, involved something that I perhaps witnessed directly, not hearsay, but I might have witnessed directly and misunderstood or understood, and then I spoke of it, and then I regained self-control, so I censored myself. So that's usually given as the example, as the sort of the other extreme on the continuum. That, okay, I, you know, I made an, I spoke about, and it's like, okay, but Allahu A'lam, astaghfirullah, I'm not, I don't want to indulge in speculation. So it's a contained incident of where self-control is involved. Now, between that and the other extreme where you deliberately engage in, well, you know, let me find out. In our day and age, I guess, you know, I don't know much about social media, but I guess, you know, you could go do spying on social media. And, oh, let me get together information here and there, and then let me come up with some speculative ideas about what I think what's going on. And then let me talk about this person. Then you could actually be committing a kabira, a major sin. And the more, more, you indulge, and this is, Ghazali in his what writes wonderfully about this, the more you indulge in dhan, in speculation, so if you imagine on a continuum, and the more speculative your data and your thinking, and the more tajassusi your data and your thinking, the more you engaged in spying and stalking and stuff like that, and the more 
purposeless your ghaiba, the more you don't have a legitimate objective, the greater the sin. Of course, Ghazali then, you know, talks about how the Prophet, والسلام, in his Isra, uh, goes and he sees people in hell and they're suffering this and that and this way and that way. And then he asks, why are these people suffering this way? And say, these are the people who committed the 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 kabira of ghaiba and then ghazali says well you know this is an example of how these people are suffering in hell because they've committed a ghaiba that involved zan and tajassus and no restraint you know no self-control and and i'm very skeptical about all the hadith that describe punishment and hellfire during the isra um but the point remains is that there is a huge difference. The whole theme of Surah Al-Hujarat is that idea of self-control and the bond between Muslims and Muslims looking out for one another. And when ghaiba involves the act of divorcing a fellow Muslim as an other, it's the same thing with mocking. It's the same thing with deriding others, putting down others. When that Muslim becomes the other, and I have no empathy for this Muslim, and I no longer connect with this Muslim as the other, and then that becomes the license to go down a path of dhan and tajassus, the worse the sin of ghaibah. And notice what Muslim scholars wrote a great deal about. Um, that Allah compares this to eating the flesh the dead flesh of your brother or your sister. Which, as has been pointed out by so many, if Allah wanted to give us an image of how vile the sin is, I don't think Allah could have chosen a stronger example. Because, in fact, Ghazali says something very interesting that he says it is because Muslims are supposed to be as if one body. What Allah is actually saying is that it is as if you are actually consuming your own flesh. And can you imagine the horror of eating your own flesh? So this is the the flesh of one body and you are the maita here, the killing here is the killing of the idea of a Muslim ummah because ghaiba involves the othering of a Muslim and the othering of a Muslim is the beginning of the dynamic for the unraveling of the idea of a single ummah bonded together and it is precisely the 
type of mechanism that leads to the loss of empathy. The Prophet ﷺ, when he's asked about this verse in particular, there are, two, there are a lot of hadith, but there are two of them that I think stand out as really worthy of um, reflection and learning. So, one, the first one, the Prophet ﷺ responds by saying, there, there are two characteristics that there two qualities, there are no better qualities, that like they're, they're the epitome of goodness. Al-Dhan Billah wa husn al-Dhan bi-ibadillah Sorry, that you think well of Allah. So you you believe that Allah wants the best for you. And that Allah is in fact the most compassionate, the most merciful, who wants the best for you and knows what is best for you. And and thinking well, so treating other human beings with the same goodwill. It does, of course, you. You know, it, it doesn't mean that you are, you you're. You know, al-mu'min it doesn't mean that you're you're dumb or that you're uh, naive or whatever, but that you don't think ill, you don't you, uh, deny people, especially the way you talk about them and the way you think about reputations. You don't jump to the worst interpretation. And there are two characteristics that are absolutely the worst and nothing is worse than them. To think ill of Allah to similarly think ill of other human beings. I mean, you could have, if you wanted a real Islamic education in our schools and so on, you could have many class discussions about this one hadith. Because you could have, especially young Muslim minds, ponder and think and reflect upon what does thinking well of Allah and thinking ill of Allah entail and what does thinking well of people and thinking ill of people entail and the various permutations of that um, the other hadith um, again the Prophet ﷺ is asked about this ayah and he says إِيَّاكُمْ <laughs> 
فإن الظن أكذب الحديث ولا تجسسوا ولا تحسسوا ولا تنافسوا ولا تحاسدوا ولا تباغضوا وكونوا عباد الله إخوانا This hadith you can spend hours on So the Prophet says and it's been reported I mean this is this one reaches the level of mutawatir without any question that don't rely on dhan, on on speculation because often speculation means that you build your life and your decisions on falsehood on lies the duty to verify truth the vo- the duty to satisfy your conscience that you what you that you're not just if it matters then you should invest the energy and time to actually know what's true or not true if it matters and entertaining yourself or just in satisfying your curiosity doesn't mean it matters ولا تجسسوا and do not spy ولا تحاسدوا and do not envy one another ولا تنافسوا التنافس here normally people translate it as competition but in in this context what it means is not is it's the type of competition where you hurt the other in order to prevent them from getting to head so you actually pull someone behind because you don't want them to be better um wala tahassasu Atahasus is a form of spying, but while tajassus, you you it's like being a voyeur. You you you're looking where you should not look. Atahasus, you sort of like go around feeling where you're not supposed to feel things. So, um, both are a form of spying. Both are a form of violation of privacy. But one has to do with your eyes, the other has to do with your other senses. وَلَا تَبَاغَضُوا And Muslims don't pause enough with tabaghud. Tabaghud is not when you go out of your way to hate one another or to spite one another. But tabaghud is when you don't work very hard to prevent yourself from spiting one another or hating one another. There's another tradition about the tabaghud that if you feel a dislike towards another person and you accept dislike without an effort to overcome the dislike, that's tabaghud. That you, you must exert an effort to restrain and control. وَكُونُوا عِبَادَ اللَّهِ إِخْوَانًا And be brethren. And come together as brothers and sisters. Um,
Um, there is a hadith, another hadith from the Prophet. Again, it's widely reported. Probably, definitely, I think actually it reaches level of torture. Where the Prophet said, uh, that if Muslims build a society in which they spy on one another, that the ethics of the society will become corrupted. It's, it's extremely well ahead of its time. It's like if, if people are in society and they cannot rely on the expectation of privacy, that has a very corrupting influence on society. Um, In the Sufi tafsir, especially, especially the Sufi tafsir, not exclusively, but they often re- talk um, about the obligation of a tham and nafs, and the way it the way it's explained is this. You say the primary obligation is to vet oneself. So your obligation is to cleanse yourself. And as long as your obligation is to vet yourself, that's the primary obligation. So whenever you are confronted by the shortcoming of another. Since your primary obligation is not to vet the other, but to vet yourself, then your primary duty, your initial duty, is upon noticing the shortcoming of another, is to take your perception and turn the gaze inwards. And then to ask the question, do I suffer the fault that I accuse the other of? And especially in Sufi literature, they write a great deal that if you actually, if you have a good teacher, because they always emphasize the role of the teacher, the teacher will demonstrate to you or will show you that if you properly do that, you will have no space or energy 
to actually notice, to actually find faults in others because you will always find the fault that you notice in others is actually within you. And Sufis write a great deal about why is it that we notice the faults that actually threaten others, that actually threaten us the most. And they threaten us because, and this is again according to Sufi literature, that in our subconscious we know it is us that we see in others. Um, I mean, I, I'm, yeah, if I if I spend time on that, then that it it will be, and and I want to stay with, sort of, my take on the surah because, th- this literature is so teasingly beautiful. Um, and you know it's just such a, a nuanced part of the Islamic tradition people who had spent an enormous amount of effort on and Surah Al-Mujadah, Surah Al-Hujurat plays a very prominent role in the self-cleansing of any disciple of Sufism. So, you know, in all the tariqahs that I am aware of, among the first things you learn is that if you don't have Surah Al-Hujurat memorized, they have you memorize Surah Al-Hujurat, and you recite Surah Al-Hujurat so many times because the process of this self-cleansing, um, and a self-cleansing is impossible with hasad and tabaghud, with envy and rancor and you know, speaking ill of others and noticing the faults of others, it, it is just, it's a, it's a no-go when, if you're on a, a, a real Sufi path. But going back, um, um, going back to, to um, that, The emphasis that I'm putting on it is that, again, the idea of self-control the, the, that Surat Al-Hujurat begins with, because inshallah, as we will see, this is critical. I mean, as we will finish inshallah Surat Al-Hujurat and then put the entire message of Surat Al-Hujurat together, and you will see that it is really critical to the entire moral lesson that Surah Al-Hujurat delivers uh, to the Muslim Ummah. It's a small surah, but it's a huge surah at the same time. As, as, as short as it is, as enormously impactful as it was and hopefully continues to be. What time is it? Oh, wow, okay. So let, let's definitely stop and continue on Tuesday, inshallah. Uh, alhamdulillah. Um, Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. 
this is incredible. I think I took like 13 pages of notes and another like, I don't know, five pages here to try and capture highlights. Um, but because it, it is really, um, there, there's so much, we covered so much in this, in this session. Um, oh gosh, where do we start? So it's always so powerful. Thank you so much. I, I, this, this is such a beautiful Sora. It, um, and I think that it's always so powerful when, when you cover the, um, the context and what was happening then because it really places you know us in the mindset of what was happening with people and how they understood um and the idea of like you know late converts coming in sacrifice like i think that through all of the stories that we've learned it is sort of strange to think like okay now you've got people that are joining you really late and they missed all of this part that all of that sacrifice and all of that that really pushed people to build their character um but um, the Sira stories are incredible and again highlight I think the importance of inshallah trying to move to the Sira after this project but the the telling us about the educational delegations and the sacrifice that people made to go and teach other people about um, being you know about Islam and the Islamic ethic um, and helping us really recall just how much the the Prophet um, you know peace be upon him went through how much he went through in terms of navigating all of these tests and the loss of all of the children and the loved ones and the constant you know um just tra drama and trauma i'm sure and how he was able to get through it um through worship and vicar and i think that that lesson alone in in going through the sira would be just tremendous for people to really grow um the idea of this phrase you know oh you oh you believers as being an intimate call from allah is is so beautiful um, and the idea of just teaching um, as a habit, respect and reverence and having that um, understanding that that's a self-censoring mechanism and recognizing how Wahhabism has really been anti-reverence for the Prophet Muhammad. Um, and, and of course we see and feel the impact of that in, in our, our modern day. And the question of how can you be actually mindful of what the Prophet would approve of or not if you actually don't know the prophet and you don't know who that person you know was or what what the prophet cared about loved um, reacted to um, and asking the question is the spirit of the prophet muhammad with you and if you you know and train yourself to think you know what would the prophet and you wrote about this in the search for beauty it's like what would the prophet do in this situation you know what would the prophet want from me and would the prophet approve of these decisions and just the really important point about islamophobia and people like um you know ayan hershey ali and really zeroing in on attacking the prophet and killing the prophet you know as a moral figure and an ethical figure and what that actually means for the future of islam and again underscores the importance of inshallah us getting to the sirah and learning these stories um but the central idea of being mindful um, and having the example that we begin with the tone of voice and that the, um, you know, how this created this whole ethic towards your teacher, your parents, your elders, and how this is the quintessential example of self-control, controlling your impulses as a habit, learning that as a habit, um, and understanding that we are coded to have a sense of reverence and that we have to be reflective about who do you revere? Do you revere your teachers, your parents, and your elders? Um, if you don't, then you um, run the risk of um, revering people who are in possession of power, celebrities, you know, things that are on other, um, you know, less uh, obviously ethical and moral um, terms. And the beautiful um, verse about how Allah molded your piety through these tests to control your impulse and that this is how you achieve true pi piety and strength, which again, you know, ties back to these 
this idea of people joining and not having those those tests and those sacrifices and just you know and and also appreciating how much people who've been in this message for so long really were strong from everything they'd been through um, again, just emphasizing the internal indicators of self-control, tone of voice, being mindful, showing proper deference, um, which and this whole idea of self-control is critical to the idea of um, controlling yourself from backbiting, from spying, um, just busying yourself with yourself and not with others. Um, and then being introduced to all the different social ethics. Um, if you receive information, you have a duty to investigate before acting on it, being a weighty person, taking seriously, being morally conscious about the flow of information, processing information, due diligence, don't be a lightweight, um, and understanding your historical moment that the Prophet Muhammad is with you now um, and knowing now that um, that was not going to continue for very much longer. Um, and to try and just like internalize that mindfulness um, so that Allah would infuse your heart with this attraction, this gift of an attraction towards faith um, and a repulsion towards the opposite. Um, and em emphasizing the, the idea of brotherhood and sisterhood, focusing on peace, fraternity, justice, and fairness, um, and creating the enterprise for justice. So creating mechanisms for justice, institutions for justice, and ways to objectify justice so that it goes beyond just a subjective understanding or a subjective uh, perception. Um, underscoring that you cannot skill, spill the blood of dissenters, um, teaching us about this invented tradition about the Khawarij, the dogs of hellfire, and how so many Muslims have been killed in our modern day um, based on that, that invention. Um, and the social ethic of, um, again, okay, principle of fraternity, peace, um, getting to justice, getting to peace through just solutions, um, that you can't mock people or put people down because of their defects, and that certainly um, Allah could um, have you suffer from a similar thing that you are mocking others of, not to call each other names, and not to... Um, be uh, using use obscenities, um, avoiding speculation, don't pierce the veil of intimacy for unjust purposes or just for entertainment, um, and um, that this could actually uh, you know lead to a, a major sin. Um, the combination of you know on the one hand you could have it just be lack of self control, on the other hand it could be deliberate de deliberately engaging in uh, spying, trying to find things out for for immoral reasons. Um, and just this concept of the Muslims being like one body and this visualization of, you know, if you don't think of others as part of yourself and you otherize other people, that you are actually eating the flesh of your own body or otherwise, otherizing Muslims in a way that you're killing the notion of a single ummah. Alhamdulillah, that is incredible and I and not even we're not even done and I cannot wait for I mean even to like touch upon these these Sufi um, you know interpretations and just the idea of again underscoring the importance of turning inward it like in every way it's like every opportunity to turn inward and focus on yourself because there's so much that you need to fix before you start looking at others anyway thank you so much this priceless information um, it just gives us a window into how much more there is to learn and um, inshallah I pray that we can move forward with with the seerah after this we're just gonna keep hammering that home because it just becomes so clear how important that knowledge is you know as a continuation of everything we're learning here so 
Alhamdulillah, thank you so much. Um, and inshallah, we look forward to ama an amazing session. Have a great rest of the weekend. Looking forward to meeting again. Oh my God, are we going to meet on Tuesday? Because we'll have to see, well, right? I, I think to continue Surah the Hajarat, yes. Okay. Because uh, it's, it's maybe not. Maybe the first week of classes is not as difficult as once you jump in. Yeah, well, yeah, because I, because I don't have to prepare anything. Okay. Inshallah. Okay, our last for, Tuesday session for a while, inshallah. So we will see you Tuesday. Have a wonderful rest of the weekend. Yes, Assalamu alaikum. Assalamu alaikum.